0: Tonight, it's our privilege to open up the book of Isaiah. And to be just completely honest, to put it all on the table, to spoil every surprise, I couldn't be much more excited than I am tonight to handle this particular text. You know, when we decided to start this service three years ago, move all the way through Genesis to Revelation, I had a couple of goals in mind. There's a couple of reasons we do this. One is uh, I owe a good deal of my stability and my relationship and walk with God to a similar study. It's amazing how going through the whole Bible with a single teacher or with multiple teachers, the whole Bible is the important part. It's amazing how that grounds you out and you're no longer, like Paul says, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Some really fancy Schmanz preacher may convince you of his interpretation of a single passage, but you have the entire Bible as a Rolodex. And you go, yeah, but what about Jeremiah? Yeah, but what about what it says in the Psalms? How do you align that with the Old Testament at all, right? The second thing that I really wanted to accomplish um, was apologetic in nature. It was, it was a defense. There are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand and have become outright questionable in our day and age, and I wanted to just take them head on. I wanted to deal with them and address them and use them where they were necessary to critique our culture um, and to also address them where it was necessary to explain what was actually going on. Um, But my third goal was to um, make better Bible readers. In other words, I didn't want to just teach you what the Bible says, I wanted to teach you how to be a better student of the Scriptures. Okay, it's that one especially that we're going to delve into tonight. We're going to uh, learn by looking at Isaiah chapter 7 how to handle the scriptures, how we come to the conclusion, what does the Bible mean? Um, Scholastically, we call this hermeneutics, as in the Greek god Hermes, the messenger god. How do you convey a message? How do you understand a message? What sort of evidence does an author leave behind so you can know that you know what he meant? But on top of that, not only do we get to do chapter 7, but we also get to do chapter 6, which is in a completely different direction. As important as it is to have good tools to read the Bible, what happens and is demonstrated in Isaiah 6 is a whole other side of beef. It's a completely different thing. Um, Look with me in Isaiah Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw... Lord. Now, at this point, we're five chapters in already to the message of Isaiah. He's already been ministering during the days of Uzziah, like we saw last week, as well as Uzziah's predecessor. He's been active. He's ministering. He knows who God is. He proclaims the truth of who God is. He's faithful to his calling. No doubt he loves the Lord. But in this chapter, doctrine becomes experience. And that's categorically a different thing. He says, at this particular time, he marks it on his calendar. I remember it was the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord, he says, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two he flew. So he has this vision of the throne room of God. And notice one thing he doesn't describe here. He doesn't describe God himself. The closest he gets is the throne where God seats and the robe that God is adorned in. Uh, And then there also is this angelic host. Specifically, they're titled here seraphim. We're told that there's six wings uh, on each seraphim and that they use the wings both as a covering as well as, uh, as to fly. And then notice that these angels are worshiping the one who is on the throne. Verse three, one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice that thrice repeated holy there, okay? In Semitic idiom, saying something twice is a form of emphasis okay so in Jesus's ministry he regularly says truly truly or if you're reading the King James verily verily I say unto you he's emphasizing the veracity of what he's about to say but a triple emphasis is pretty rare in the Bible here it's not just holy holy but holy 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 okay it's not just an emphasis it's an epitome nothing uh nothing compares to the Lord in His holiness, and then it says here, the whole earth is full of His glory, even this vision of this throne room where the train is full, uh, and as you'll see in a second, it's going to fill with smoke. that's not enough for God's glory. God's glory needs the entirety of creation to contain uh his, the whole earth it says is filled with his glory. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the vision that Isaiah has here. And like I said, this is where Isaiah's doctrine becomes experience. And it puts, uh, it puts Isaiah in a completely different category. He knows the holiness of God. He knows, he's talked about, we've already seen it in the text, God's glory. But here, he experiences it. He has front row tickets to it. He tastes the full frontal reality of the living God. Uh, And I think we need to be careful. I love being a Bible-oriented church. I believe that a strong foundation to a Christian life, in fact, I believe the only way to know God is to listen to what he said and how he's revealed himself in scripture. There's no getting around that. Without the Bible, all you have is your imaginary preponderings of who God is. Okay? However, it's important that we don't leave God in the text. And the problem with a lot of language, and this is true of all sorts of words, not just glory and holy and even God, uh, is that they're very much placeholders until you actually encounter them, okay? So falling in love is a phrase you've heard your entire life, but when it happens, it's categorically a different thing. It feels different. It's suddenly tangible and, and made known. Um, grief is another one of those words. You can know the definition, you can pass your vocabulary test in fifth grade, but you lose your mother just after Thanksgiving. Now you know grief, right? This is how language works. Uh, Here, Isaiah moves beyond vocabulary. And once again, he moves into the category of experience. And it's important that we realize uh, that this is something that God desires to give his people not always, not continuously, but Isaiah's story is not unique. Having an encounter with the living God is Moses on Mount Sinai saying, just, just show me your presence, Lord, right? And that encounter changes him to the degree that he's literally, and I mean that word literally, glowing afterwards. He's transformed. This experience of God is something that is completely appropriate for us to long for, and there are many testimonies of this happening, even outside of Scripture. Consider D.L. Consider Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist around the time of the Civil War. During his day and age, he was seen live by more people alive than any American predecessor, period. More people sat and heard Moody preach than had seen any president, had seen any celebrity, had ever heard a speaker. He drew huge crowds all across the country. And he was in ministry for a long time until he encountered two elderly women who had been praying for his ministry and they said, we are convinced that you need the Holy Spirit. And that really got under his skin. And as much as he was already being used by the Lord and he knew God was working in his life, something about that resonated with him, and he began to pray that God would pour out his spirit on a new way. And on a particular day, in a particular hotel room, as Moody was praying, the spirit came upon him, and he was overwhelmed, according to his journals, with the love of God to the degree that he had to beg God to stop, because he didn't think he could keep living with that experience. Or consider Blaise Pascal. Speaking of this idea of the difference between doctrine uh, and experience, Blaise Pascal was one of the great mathematicians and philosophers of enlightenment. He grew up in the church, he was familiar with Christianity, he himself had identified as a Christian, believed the doctrines of Christianity, but then something happened. And just so you know, we didn't know about this happening until he died, and we found sewn into his jacket a piece of paper. And this is what the piece of paper says. Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement, Pope and martyr and others in martyrology, vigil at St. Chrysogonus, martyr and others, from about half past 10 at night until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the learned certitude certitude feeling joy peace god of jesus christ my god and your god your god will be my god forgetfulness of the world and of everything except god he is only found by the ways taught in the gospel grandeur of the human soul righteous father the world has not known you but i have known you joy 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 tears of joy i have departed from him They have forsaken me, the font of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and the one who you sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation. Total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus, Christ, and to my director, eternally in joy for a day's exercise on earth. May I not forget your words? Amen. He carried this happening, as recorded in those words, right next to his chest for the rest of his life until he died. An encounter. It's right, it's proper for us to, to long for that. To want what Isaiah has here. And I want to point out to you that all of us who know the Lord will see him. That this may be something that some people have a taste of now, here, before death. But all of us will have the full experience of it. Some of us, like Moody, like Pascal, like Isaiah here, we get to view the trailer in advance. But we're all invited to the film. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. This picture of the throne room that uh, Isaiah paints here, God on the throne and angelic worship going on, it's repeated in the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, John has a vision of this same throne room in heaven, and he paints the picture for us again. And not only are there angels in worship, but the 24 elders who are, you know, the historical representation of the leadership of the church. And every time the angels go off in worship like this, the elders fall down to their face and throw their thrones before the Lord. And then you turn to chapter 5 and Jesus walks in, the Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb that was slain. And they begin to worship Jesus just as they worship the one on the throne. But what I want to draw your attention to is what happens in chapter 7. Here, the story of Revelation has moved on a little bit, but I want you to notice the where of what we're about to read. He says in chapter seven, verse nine, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and all the angels who were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. In Jesus Christ, because of what he did on the cross, you're invited to that historical future event. You're invited into the very throne room of God. You will experience what Isaiah experienced here. But it's not inappropriate for us to want to experience God now. It's not appropriate, inappropriate for us to desire to really know the God that we know through Scripture. In fact, listen to the words here in John chapter 12. He's talking here, John, the author of his gospel, is talking here about the rejection of Jesus. And so he quotes from Isaiah. In fact, he quotes uh, from a passage we're about to read at the tail end of chapter 6. And afterwards, he explains his quotation, saying in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John says that this vision of the Lord seated upon his throne that Isaiah sees He sees Jesus Christ. He's the one who is present. He's the one on the throne who is being worshipped. He is the very God of very God. The second thing I want you to notice about this passage is the response. He has this encounter. He has this experience. And look at verse 5. And he said, Woe is me. Okay, the primary emotion that Isaiah experiences in the presence of the living God, is despair. In fact, if you remember from last week, chapter 5 closes with all of these woes that Isaiah speaks over Israel. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, and so on and so forth. But he reserves the last woe for himself here. It's not woe to you, Israel. It's woe is me. And he explains why. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What he sees primarily and fully is the juxtaposition of the holiness and glory of God and his own frail and sinful condition. He knows that he cannot survive being in the presence of God. In fact, that's a repeated refrain in the Old Testament. For no one can see God and live. Even when Moses has his experience, God explains that very principle. says, no man can see me and live, but hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover it with my hand and you will see my afterglow. You will see what's left over after I pass by. You will see a filtered version of these things. But Isaiah here, in his vision, he's overwhelmed. He's, uh, as the King James says, he's undone. He's just destroyed by what he sees. And then notice what happens, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. His circumstances are desperate and they're dire and they're resolved here, not by the action of Isaiah, but by an angel who takes a coal from the altar itself within the throne room and touches it to Isaiah's lips and through that offers him full-on forgiveness and atonement. Okay? And so he doesn't enter into the midst of God's presence clean He enters in dirty, but in God's presence, he's cleansed. God takes care of this. And I want to remind you again, Isaiah is not just, you know, some uh, backsliding bum, right? This is the prophet of the living God. Here he labels his lips unclean, but these are the lips that gave the oracles of God himself in chapters one through five. And yet, when he's put in the presence of God, he needs cleansing. And the good news is here, as it is good news for us, is that cleansing is readily available, already prepared and planned and destined for Isaiah. And where does he find it? How does he come to have it? Through confession, through need, through articulating how dire his circumstances are, through availing himself to God's mercy. And then notice verse 8, And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, the order here is really important. I want you to notice that it doesn't start with a commission and then forgiveness. It's not, Hey, if anyone wants to take this job, I will reward you by atoning for your sins. At this point, The scales of Isaiah's guilt have been completely balanced. He's innocent, and then comes the commissioning, and then comes the calling, and then comes the service. In fact, Isaiah here moves from being overwhelmed to wanting to continue this professional relationship, right? From feeling like uh, like death is knocking at the door of his own skull to raising his hand and volunteering. Here I am, send me. I think these two things in balance, an understanding of the holiness and glory of God and that full availing forgiveness that he offers, that always leads to the desire to serve. It always leads to the commission. I promise you, if you're tired of serving Jesus, if you have no desire to do his will, then one of those two things is missing. Either you've forgotten the glory of God or you've neglected the forgiveness available to you in Christ. But when we're truly in the presence of God and when we stand in there, boldly entering the throne room by the grace of Jesus Christ, our hands naturally go up. We're naturally interested in serving. And so Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then notice verse nine, he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay, so what is his commission here? His commission is not just promise to be ineffective. God doesn't just say, go ahead and talk, but they won't listen. He actually says, look at verse 10, make the heart of this people dull the hardening comes through the message of Isaiah. It's his prophesying that brings about this result. Okay. But effectively here, Isaiah is told that his own call to Israel for repentance will bear zero fruit whatsoever. And you might look at that and go, well, isn't that terribly unfair? How can God harden people and then cross his arms and condemn them for being so hard-hearted? but that's to misunderstand a couple of things. One is the chronology here, okay? Isaiah's ministry has already been active. He's already been going to the people. God has graciously, as we saw in First and Second Kings, patiently persevered against the sins of Israel, pushed back judgment again and again and again. What happens here is the end of God's patience, what happens here is God moving into judgment, and the judgment begins not with the Assyrian armies, but in the hearts of his people. And it's a hardening. Nonetheless, I imagine at this point Isaiah regrets being so swift to volunteer. Because what does this hardening look like in practice if you're the mouthpiece? You know, we have that saying don't shoot the messenger. I'm pretty sure we got it from the history of the prophets in the Old Testament, right? That is the reality of their lives, is because they are the voice piece of God, they become public enemy number one, and they suffer greatly for it. Even to put it in more toned-back terms, what if God gave you assignment and told you up front, you're going to do it your whole life. You're going to devote all of your energy and all of your time to it, and it will bear no fruit. It will do no good will change no lives it will be completely unappreciated and unreceived that's why verse 11 isaiah responds how long O lord how long do i have to do this for how long is this ministry going to be and god responds until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And so he basically says, till the end. You're going to minister until the judgment that you're warning about finally comes. Isaiah is one of the prophets who has the whole message of it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's here. And he's going to be here for the whole time. Now there's something I want to make clear here. It's easy to read this and think that that meant that Isaiah went to the people in riddles that he went in enigmatic sayings, that God hid the clear truth of what was coming so that it wouldn't be understood. But what's interesting is when Isaiah goes out and he's criticized in his ministry, it's not for putting the cookies way up on the top shelf. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 28. Most likely, the words we're about to read here, despite the fact that they're sometimes misapplied, uh, are the words of Isaiah's critics. So notice what they say here in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast? Preschoolers, right? For it's precept upon precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, here a little, there a little. What's Israel's problem with Isaiah's message? It's too basic. It's too simple. It's too elementary. They don't reject Isaiah's message because they don't understand it, but because they do. The thing is, if you read the Bible thoroughly and fully, the only place to lay the full weight of consequence is upon our shoulders and not upon God's. And so, he says this, but I want you to notice, even in the midst of this, God says you're going to do it to the finish line, but he doesn't stop at the finish line. God's been promising judgment on Israel for generations, and he says, Isaiah, you're going to be the last prophet, but then notice back in verse uh, 13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Notice again, we get this idea of the remnant, okay? And as we've talked about before, a remnant always has a positive and a negative factor. It's negative because it's just a remnant, right? If you have a big sewing project and all you have left is the remnants, it's the scraps. That's all that's going to be left of Israel here. He says it's smaller than a 10th. But it's also the remnant that goes all the way back to God's promise to Elijah. A small group that he's going to work through A piece that's going to provide continuity to the next thing in God's plan. In fact, notice here it refers to them as the holy seed. He says, I'm going to fell the whole tree, but I'll leave the stump behind. And then he clarifies here, he says, the holy seed, the remnant, this little group, which we've already encountered, by the way, earlier in Isaiah, is the stump. Now, this may even be a messianic reference and the reason I say that is because look at where Isaiah goes a few chapters later in Isaiah 11, verse 1. He says here, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and it goes on there. 11, 1 is this idea, this prophecy of the righteous branch one who's a descendant of King David, one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant that we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But notice where it says that this branch, this shoot is going to come from, right out of the stump. It's new life where there was death, right? In fact, uh, most suggest here that the idea, notice it's not the stump of David, but the stump of Jesse. That's going backwards. David is big and glorious and upper class, but his dad... Just a poor shepherd. And when Jesus does show up, when the righteous branch does show up, he's not born in a palace, but a barn. He's not born in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. Just at that time, just a little tiny town. He doesn't grow up in the nice neighborhoods of Israel. He grows up in Nazareth. Remember what the disciples say when they hear Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so here, even in the judgment, God's going to do something in the ashes of Israel. He's got a plan and not even the sins of Israel are going to hinder that plan. He's made a promise to David and he's going to fulfill it despite the unfaithfulness of his people. That balance between coming judgment and a hope on the other side of judgment is a primary feature of Old Testament prophets read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, read Zechariah, read Malachi. Everyone presents a message of judgment and then says, and then. Everyone presents uh, dark days coming and then a dawn to follow. But it's especially present in Isaiah. And this is the first clear allusion to this messianic reality that becomes significant in Isaiah. In fact, that's what we're going to encounter in chapter 7. Now, as we move into chapter 7 of Isaiah, we have already dealt with the happening of this chapter. We're already familiar with this event. You may remember when we were in 2 Kings during the days of Ahaz, when Uh, we encountered uh, what they call the Uh, Syro-Ephraim War, okay? When Syria and the northern tribes of Israel partnered together to attack Judah, okay? And the reason is because Syria and Judah had taken a pro-Assyrian policy. They'd become vassals of this big Assyrian empire, and Judah was resistant to it. And so they take this as an opportunity, and their goal is to Delete Ahaz from the throne and replace him with their own puppet king so that everything can go on smoothly. And so we talked about how Isaiah came to Ahaz, and that's the story that we have here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Okay, so chapter 6, two kings ago. At the death of Uzziah, and then we have the whole reign of Jotham, and now we're all the way to the days of Ahaz. It says, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay, so the forces are gathered around Jerusalem, and again, it's the king of Syria and his armies, and the king of the northern tribes of Israel, and his armies, and they're surrounded, and it's during this time, verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He was afraid. He realized they were outnumbered and surrounded. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son. Now, Sheer Jashub's name means a remnant shall return. And so I think it's very likely here that what we were just reading in uh, the tail end of Isaiah chapter six leads to this prophetic naming of Isaiah's son. He hears the judgment that's to come and for him to survive going about his ministry, he has to look beyond the hardening and the not hearing and the judgment and the desolation. And so he names his son. There will be a remnant. The remnant will return. Okay. But notice here it's, take your son to work day. Sheer jeshub comes for, along for the line. That actually is way more important than it seems. Okay? And so they go, and then notice where they go. Verse 10, take him to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, like we talked about, probably the reason Ahaz is here is because he's preparing some canals to get outside of Jerusalem water inside So that they can survive the siege okay as we talked about eventually hezekiah in a few years is going to take these waterworks and the ones that date all the way back to the jebusites when david took the city and combine them to create a significant water source that operates as a holdout so that they can be safely under siege okay so he's here and what is he doing he's preparing for the inevitable He's doing his best effort to survive what's about to go on, and God sends Isaiah to him, and Isaiah speaks to him, verse 4, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Okay. And so notice, God both tells him not to be afraid and tells him to watch his step. Okay. The thing is, when you're afraid, you don't think. Right, you act. Okay, that's why every once in a while, if somebody jumps around a corner and scares you, you punch them, even though you're they're your friend. Or in my case, you know, my wife did that to me in the first year of our marriage, uh, which I deserved. But generally, even though I scared her and she would have been mad about it, she wouldn't have hit me. She hit me because she was afraid. Okay, that's what's going on with Ahaz right now. He hasn't thought about God. And side note, Ahaz is not a great king. He's not one of the good kings. He doesn't have a solid relationship with God. The fact that God sends Isaiah with a plan of deliverance at all is really surprising. But he comes and he says, basically, thus says the Lord, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Romalia. In other words, he says... They're just smoldering stumps. They're not even really on fire. It's smoke, but there's no flame, okay? He says, don't worry about them. God says effectively, I've got this under control. Verse five, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. Notice God's reasoning here. He doesn't say, because you've been a faithful king, He doesn't say, because I want to be merciful on the people of Isaiah, he says, because the king of Israel is breaking the rules and fighting his own people, the people of Judah, I'm not going to let this stand, okay? God is interfering here because of the king of Israel's misstep and not because he favors Ahaz. And then verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So the first thing he says here is, they're big and powerful now, and they've aligned themselves with Assyria, but just a generation from now, I'm going to remove them from the land, okay? Verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, Okay? And then he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He says there's only one way to make a stand. There's only one way to stand still. There's only one way to bear these consequences. You have to be firm in faith. If he doesn't put his trust in God, everything else will fail him. Now what follows after this, uh, let's go ahead and read it and then we'll talk about verse 10. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first glance, that sounds pious. In fact, in many places, it tells us not to test God. Deuteronomy six sixteen: do not put the Lord to the test, okay? Uh, there are many occasions that are like this, uh, but there are also places where God invites being tested, invites the showing of a sign. You may remember we looked at King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, God comes and he says, You're going to die. And Hezekiah begins to pray. And so God sends this prophet and he says, You're not going to die because of your prayers. I'm going to answer them. You're going to live for 15 more years. And Ahaz says, Show me a sign. God doesn't have a problem with that, He provides him a sign. In fact, in Malachi 3.10, speaking to the people of Israel who have stopped tithing, he says, why don't you test me in this? If you give as you're supposed to give, will I not bless you abundantly? Okay, not problematic. What, what Ahaz is, is doing here looks like piety, but it's actually unbelief. He's not picking up what Isaiah is laying down. He's not interested in what he has for sale. He just uses this as an excuse And so, verse 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And so, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay? Now, many of us probably recognize that prophecy. It's the one in Matthew chapter 2 that Matthew says, This is a promise That when Jesus, the Messiah, came, he would be born of a virgin. And he would be God in the flesh. God with us is what Emmanuel means. And so Matthew says this, Isaiah chapter 7, is about that. But a lot of people have read this passage and called foul. And they've gone, hey, wait a minute. How can that be? Okay. Now, to be honest, one of the primary reasons scholars of the New Testament have called foul is because they don't like the idea of a virgin birth. And so they've tried to say, aha, here is a place where Matthew misunderstood the Old Testament and wrongly applied it to Jesus and then made up a story to back it up to make Jesus more significant than he was. Okay. Um, so one of the suggestions they make is, hey, how is that possibly a sign to the house of Ahaz? Ahaz is right here before a siege. Isaiah says, why don't you give a sign, a sign that will prove that 65 years from now Israel won't even be a people and he says I don't want a sign and he goes I'm going to give you one anyways a virgin is going to conceive and bear a child. The second thing they'll point out they'll say look the word here for virgin is taken from the Greek Septuagint okay so the Greek Septuagint is written about a century before Jesus it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament it's the one that Jesus And all of his disciples and the religious leaders in the New Testament, all of them quote from. It's their Bible of their day, okay? It's in Greek. Uh, But they argue that the Hebrew word we have here, uh, Alma, doesn't actually mean virgin. And so every once in a while you'll encounter a translation that says young woman, which makes this whole statement a lot easier to swallow, right? Oh, a young woman has a child. Boom. That's understandable. It probably happened. It probably only spoke to Ahaz, okay? Okay. Side note, is that really a sign? A lady gives birth, and that's the sign? It's not a very significant or abnormal thing, is it? Okay. Um, So I want to deal with both of these issues. First, what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 7? Then, what's going on with the vocabulary? What does this word for virgin hair really mean? Okay. First off, some people suggest that the way to understand this prophecy is with a principle called the principle of double fulfillment. The idea here is very simply that there are certain prophecies in the Old Testament that have a near and partial fulfillment and then a far and actual real fulfillment. And so some woman really did give birth in Ahaz's age, but it's really ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The problem with that principle is it's tremendously subjective. You get to decide when it's Uh, at play, you get to decide which pieces were fulfilled and not fulfilled. Uh, It's it's just, uh, it's not a critical way to understand the Bible, and I mean that in the classical sense. It doesn't actually have evidence. The the reason this is a passage of double fulfillment is because we say it is. That's what it reduces down to, okay? Um, Now, there is such a thing as topology, and we've talked about this. There are Old Testament people, places, things, and events that picture prophetically Jesus Christ. That includes institutions like the temple and the sacrificial system. It includes roles in Israel's society like the king and the priest, the high priest in particular. And it also includes events. Remember in the Gospel of John chapter 3 when Jesus is explaining his own ministry and he says, that bronze serpent in the wilderness that everybody looked to and was saved I'm that bronze serpent, okay? Topology. Okay. But double fulfillment is being applied to prophecies, not people place things in events that have future significance, but prophecies, okay? I would suggest to you that you should throw out that idea and you should ignore it when it's presented to you. It's not a good tool. I'll give you a better tool. A better tool is the principle of double reference double reference means the prophets don't always put breaks between one prophecy and another. In fact, the reason why I'm comfortable with the principle of double reference is because it's a principle that I see Jesus himself employing. And generally, I like to use Jesus's rules for interpreting the Bible as my rules. Okay, and so in Isaiah 61, we see the principle of double reference playing out. Now, side note, the reason why we're looking at this passage is because this is the passage in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus reads from the scroll in his synagogue in Nazareth and then says what we've just read is being fulfilled in your hearing, okay? So I want you to notice here in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and it goes on and on. Now look with me in Luke chapter 4, hold your, hold your finger in Isaiah and look at Luke chapter 4. And so, in chapter four, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, to Jesus, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's flavor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back. Okay. What I want you to notice here is when we read that passage in Isaiah, Jesus doesn't just stop before the passage ends. He stops mid-sentence. The next word in the text that Jesus leaves out is the word and. Okay? And the day of God's vengeance. But Jesus rolls, reads this first part, and he says, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus recognizes in Isaiah 61, despite our reading of it just naturally as we turn to it, is between that little word and is a good deal of time that we still exist in between Jesus' first coming and his return, between him coming to die for sins and him coming back to judge the world. The only reason we know that division is there is because another passage gives us clarity and shows us the division. If you want a boatload of examples of this, read the book of Revelation. Revelation is full of Old Testament prophecies that have been put in order and organized But if you go back and read them in their context, it's hard to tell where one begins and another ends. The prophets have a tendency to skip around in what they're seeing. Here's an illustration that I've always found helpful. Imagine that you grow up in a valley and you can see two mountains as you look out the valley, but from the look of it, they're right next to each other. But then one day you travel over the hills and as you get closer to the mountains, one of them comes into view and you realize the other one is much bigger but much further away, right? That's what's going on with the prophets in the Old Testament. They have these visions, but they don't see how it lays out on the timeline. They don't see how it lays out on the grid. Okay. So here's why I like double reference better. Not only do we see Jesus using it, but we're utilizing evidence from other passages of Scripture to understand what's going on in the one we're reading. Okay. Now with that being said, Isaiah is especially easy to do this with in chapter 7 because of something else that you can't see. Okay. Forgive me while we talk about grammar. Here's the thing. In English, the uh, third-person singular, you, and the third-person plural, you, is the same. And so I can refer to any individual in here as you. Can you get me a cup of water? But I can also say, can you collectively turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter seven? If you come from the south, then every once in a while you get a you all, which is a true third person plural. But in Greek, as well as Hebrew, those are different words in their writing and in pronunciation. In other words, if you were reading this in the original language, you can tell where the author is addressing a single person and where he's addressing a crowd collectively. Why am I telling you this? Because in this passage, the passage switches back and forth from singular pronouns to plural pronouns and back to singular again. In fact, if you have good notes in your margin, you'll see that I'm not making this stuff up. It'll tell you right there. And so, for example... Footnote number one on verse uh, nine says to me, the Hebrew for you is plural in verses nine, 13, and 14. The Hebrew for you and your is singular in verses 11, 16, and 17. It's right here, right here in the translation. That's what this means. Let me read the passage to you with these pronouns in an understandable way. Going back to verse nine, Isaiah says, if you Ahaz are not firm in the faith, you Ahaz will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your Ahaz, your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Not Ahaz, the whole house, collectively. He broadens it out. And so, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you, plural, to test the Lord your God? You all to test the Lord? Is it too little for you to worry men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. And here's the kicker, verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you Ahaz dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you Ahaz and upon you Ahaz your people and upon you Ahaz your father's house such days now here's the six million dollar question why why did the pronouns change here what i'm suggesting you tonight is because there's really two things going on here not just one god is both giving a sign to ahaz and he's giving a sign to the entire house of david in fact what i want you to recognize is what's at stake in this passage because Ahaz is a direct descendant of David, and what's going to come about on Israel, what's being threatened on Israel, is destruction. So how can God fulfill his promises to David if destruction is coming? So there's a twofold focus here. Okay. Now, what's going on? Look at verse 14. This is the sign that's given to the collective house of David. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A couple of things here. First, that word behold. Behold is not a word we use in the English language, but you'll read it in your Bible a lot and in terms of translation. But you can say behold about something in the past. You can say it about something right in front of you. John does that with Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we can picture John pointing at Jesus, right? And it can also speak of something future. But here it employs the present participle, okay? Now, we're nerding out here, but let me tell you, any time the present participle shows up with the word behold, it's always a future behold. It's looking forward, okay? That's important. Second, I want you to notice that it says the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Here's good hermeneutics again. When we encounter a definite article, the word the, okay? uh, It specifies what we're talking about. The difference between a chair and the chair is I'm only talking about one particular chair when I use the, right? With a chair, any chair will do, right? So when we encounter the definite article in the Bible, now just a side note because someday some of you are going to study Greek and find this out to be the case. This isn't as precise in Greek as it is in Hebrew or in English for that matter. In Greek, we use the definite article all the time and it doesn't always convey this particularity. There's other reasons, but here... When we encounter the definite article, here's the basic rules. Rule number one, you assume that we're talking about something that's already been referred to. Okay. So I want you to imagine this. We're walking down a street together, there's a lot of houses, and I say, have you ever, have you ever been to the White House? Okay. Because we're walking down a street, you're going to assume that I'm talking about the White House that's just next to us. That's the one I'm talking about. The problem is, when we look for the virgin in this story, there isn't one. Okay. There is no virgin in the context. There's no virgin present that's being referred to. So why does he use the definite article? When there's not one in the context, we assume a common reference that everybody would know. So remove us from the street, and here I ask the question, have you been to the White House? We all know which one I'm talking about, right? It's not the one on 17th or on 15th. It's the one at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the White House. Okay. What, I'm, what I would suggest to you here is by Isaiah evoking the definite article here with no virgin being present, he's talking about the virgin everybody knows. Now, is there one biblically in that idea? Is there one in the context of Israel's heritage and history that everybody would know as the virgin? How about the promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15 when God says, the seed of the woman. Not the seed of the man, but the seed of the woman will be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. This is not the first prophecy of the virgin birth. It's a follow-up one that clarifies. Okay? God reveals himself and his plan progressively. Reading the Old Testament through, getting all the way to Jesus is, watching, is like watching a painter. And so at first, there's just outlines and shadows, but the longer you watch him paint, the clearer the image becomes. And so in the beginning, it says, the Messiah is going to come. And near the end, in the Minor Prophets, he says, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Do you see the difference in clarity there? Isaiah is part of that progression. And so here he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what's going to be unique about the virgin that we didn't know it yet He's going to be the one who's called God with us. God in the flesh. Now, again, this is another thing that Isaiah is going to hit on all the time. The juxtaposition between the humanity and the divinity of the Messiah. And you'll have to keep coming back for me to prove that. But this is the first place it comes out. Now, um, so here is this sign and it's for the household of David. And here's the last thing you need to know in the context. Chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 have traditionally been known even before the coming of Jesus as the book of Emmanuel. Because this word occurs over and over again in chapter 7, in chapter 8, and in chapter 10. Okay. So this Emmanuel we're being introduced to, he's going to come back into the story. This whole thing focuses here. And why am I telling you that right now? Because we're going to see in chapter 8 That the reason why God is going to protect Ahaz now is because Emmanuel hasn't come yet. Okay? The heritage of David is safe until the promised one comes. Okay? So, you go, okay, great. But what about the sign for Ahaz? Keep reading. So first it says in verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. That basically just means Jesus is gonna grow up in poverty. We'll come back to that in chapter eight. But then notice verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good of the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And you go, okay, clearly this doesn't work because by the time the boy is old enough to know right from wrong, which is basically 12 in a Jewish mindset, these kings are going to be defeated. So how can that be? Remember to watch for the definite article. Okay, the boy. Now, is that the one that was just referenced, the son born to the virgin? It could be, but there is another boy in the story, isn't there? Isaiah's son. You see, if it, what I'm suggesting to you here is he gives this sign and he says, behold, the virgin will conceive and call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey and grow up and know right from wrong. And then he says, and before the boy, and he points to Shear Jashub, his son, he says, before this boy knows how, to, uh, knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay. If that's not the right way to read this passage, if you want to call foul for that being too far removed, then you have to explain to me why Shear Jashub is here at all. This makes sense of what happens in the passage, okay? This explains what's going on. And so here, uh, Isaiah talks about two children, one who is to come and one who came with Isaiah. And he uses them both to illustrate. He compares the two. Um, One is a sign for Ahaz. Listen, before my boy is old enough to know right from wrong, before his 12th birthday, this is all gonna be over. And the other is a future virgin child Now, this whole thing doesn't matter, it loses its significance if this word virgin doesn't really mean virgin, if it just means young woman. So that brings us to part two, okay? First hermeneutics lessons involved context and grammar. Second hermeneutics lesson tonight involves vocabulary and definitions, okay? Um, Here's the thing. When the Old Testament, in Hebrew, references young women we encounter three different words, okay? There's nara, okay? And nara uh, can be used of a virgin. So for example, in 1 Kings 1, verse 2. Side note, what we're doing right now, you can do. You can pick up a concordance, and a concordance will give you every reference of a particular Hebrew word or a Greek one in the New Testament, and you can look at them and study them for yourself, or you can do what I like to do and you can go to blueletterbible.org and you can pull up a particular word and it will lay it out all on the screen for you, not just with the references. It takes out all of the work and you can just read them right there, okay? When you do that and you turn and you see this word nara as it's used in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, uh, I've got like 10 references that I wanna take you guys through tonight. We'll see if I get tired of it and I just tell you and you can write them down. But we might as well start strong. Okay, 1 Kings 1, 2. King David was old, this is verse one, and advanced in years and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore the servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king. Let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms. Okay, according to history, as weird as this sounds, this young woman has to be a virgin. Okay? Culturally, we know that's required of what's going on here. However, when we encounter this word in Ruth chapter 2, verse 6, it refers to Naomi, who's a widow. Oh, excuse me, it refers to Ruth. Naomi's too old. It refers to Ruth, who's a widow. She's been married. She's no longer a virgin. Same word. Okay, so Nara's off the table. Everybody agrees about that. But then there's the word Betula. And if you read uppity commentaries that try and excuse away the idea of the virgin birth, they'll say if Isaiah really wanted to convey virginity, he wouldn't have used Alma, he would have used Betula. The problem is when you look at the references to Betula, uh, there's a whole bunch of them that clearly, clearly don't convey virginity. I'll give you a couple of ways that it does so. Twice this word is used, and then it adds, who had never known a man. And so it says in your translation, a virgin who had never known a man. Do you hear the redundancy there? Why does it need to clarify that if the word carries all of that freight? It probably doesn't. There's also places where the word is used, and it refers uh, very clearly to people who are not virgins. And so if you want to do this homework yourself, uh, look at Joel 1.8. Genesis 24.10, uh, look at Judges 21.12, okay, in all of those references you'll see it's clearly not talking about a woman who has never had sex. However, Alma, the one that's used here in Isaiah, is used six other times in the Bible. Every single time it clearly refers to a woman who is also a virgin, every time, okay. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 30, the uh, Alma is contrasted contrasted with the prostitute. The significance, the value of that contrast is one of virginity. It's used of uh, Isaac's wife when Abraham's servant goes to find her. Okay. Uh, it's used uh, in Exodus chapter 2 verse 8. You remember when Moses is floated down the river and his young sister mary comes and finds him it's used of her okay consistently the proper word employed for women of virginal status throughout the bible is this one and here's the kicker for me before matthew quotes isaiah 7 in matthew chapter 2 and applies it to jesus being born of a virgin remember the story joseph and mary's visited by an angel you're going to conceive of the holy spirit Joseph sees she's pregnant, is even going to put her away, divorce her because of this, and an angel comes to him and says, no, this is something God is doing, right? Before he pens that, the Septuagint is written, obviously. The one that he quotes, the one he utilizes is, again, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But here's the thing, the word that these Greek translators use 100 years before Jesus to understand Isaiah chapter seven, exclusively in Greek means virgin. Now, sometimes people like to throw the Septuagint under the bus, but let me promise you, they were closer to the original Hebrew than we are, okay? So all of that to say, I'm suggesting to you that, um, that Matthew doesn't spot a loophole and utilize it, to empower the story of Jesus. I'm suggesting to you that Isaiah doesn't mean one thing and Matthew means another, and we just say, well, Matthew was filled with the Holy Spirit, so he understood a deeper layer, the census plenar, the fuller understanding of this thing. What I'm suggesting to you is whether Isaiah understood all the details or not, in the text itself, we find two side-by-side references that are intentionally similar but grammatically separate. And now that we've come to see the one who's Emmanuel, and by the way, we can keep reading. When you get to Isaiah chapter 9, we're clearly talking about Jesus and everybody agrees, and he's called Emmanuel there as well, okay? When we move forward, we see and can now understand, looking back, how this all pieces out, okay? So Isaiah is significant for a lot of reasons, but here's the biggest one. Isaiah gives this promise and this prophecy 700 years before Jesus is born, okay? Okay? Now, let's continue. Verse eighteen: In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines, in the clefts of the rocks, and all the thorn bushes, and on all the pastures. On the pa- all the pastures. Okay. What God says here is, Ephraim and Syria—they're going to be conquered by Assyria. And then what I want you to notice here is they're going to be conquered by Assyria at the whistle of God. He's going to call for them and they're going to come along with Egypt and they're going to trample Israel. This is how it's going to go down. In fact, notice verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. It will sweep away the beard also. In Jewish culture, being shorn, clean shorn, head, face, whole body, all of it is shameful. And what he says here is that Assyria is going to be the tool that brings shame on Israel. Okay? He's going to be the razor. Verse 21, in that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. Does that sound like a wealthy person? No, he's got a couple of barn animals. That's all that's left. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who's left in the land will eat curds and honey. I know the word there, abundance, implies a lot. Here it's being used sarcastically great life, curds and honey, that's all they have to eat because they've just got a couple of cows and a goat. That's it, okay? Verse 23, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. Remember in Isaiah 5, when he's talking about how Israel is this vineyard that's gone to rot? Here, he draws out that same imagery and he says, Israel is All of your vineyards are going to go to pieces. Verse 24, with bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. Okay, I see a lot of things in Cal Anderson Park. I've never seen somebody shooting a bow and arrow. Okay, if you modernize, it's the same. I never see people hunting in Cal Anderson Park. Okay, we go to the wilderness to do that. That's the point. He's saying the cities of Israel, they're gonna be good hunting grounds, empty of people and full of wild animals. Verse 25, and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you'll not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they'll become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Okay, all the farms are going to be broken down and become uh, pasture land for the animals again. Okay, chapter 8, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to Merahashala Haspaz. Okay. Now, here's what's happening here. He is going to write a prophecy that everybody can see. In fact, the idea of a large tablet here, I want you to think of like a, a relatively small but publicly posted billboard. That's the idea here, okay? If, you're, uh, if your text says scroll, that's not the right word for scroll, okay? It's a hard writing surface on public display, and what he writes on it is this long reference. This belongs to Meir Shalah Hashbaz, okay, which is a very long, uh, long set of Hebrew, which basically means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. In other words, destruction's right around the corner. Okay. And so he writes this, and then notice verse 8, and I'll get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jerobochiah to attest for me. He's going to write this and post it publicly and the day he does, he's going to do it in front of two witnesses and we're told that it's Uriah and Zechariah. Okay, Uriah is the high priest who works for King Ahaz. 2 Kings 16.10, we were introduced to him. He's the one who takes the temple in Jerusalem and sets it up just like the temple in Assyria at request of the king. Is he pro-Ahaz or anti-Ahaz? He's pro-Ahaz. Okay. The second guy, Zechariah, that is... Ahaz's father-in-law. Okay. It's the father of his wife. You can see that in um, 2 Kings 18 too. Also part of Ahaz's household. In other words here, Isaiah's witnesses are not pro-Isaiah witnesses. They're enemies. This is, this is the magic trick where you invite the skeptics on stage to look under the table. Okay. Isaiah writes this out. What's going on here? he's giving a prophecy to prove that God is speaking through him about the future, and so he writes down this strange phrase, and then verse three, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And so what happens next, is he has a child with his wife. Now when it says she's the prophetess here, it may mean that she was also a prophet. We've seen female prophets before. Some people suggest this is like Mrs. Prophet. As a, in other words, Mrs. Isaiah, okay? But other way, he goes to his wife, they have a child, and then notice, then the Lord said to me, call his name, Mayor Shalahaspaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Remember when Johnny Carson used to take the envelope and he'd put it against his head and then he'd predict what was inside? That's what's going on here. He makes this public proclamation. And posts it, and then he says, Before I'm going to have a son, and before he's old enough to say mommy and daddy, Damascus is going to be destroyed. Okay? So he goes home, he conceives, the child is born, and before the child's second birthday, about, just as he said, it comes to pass. Okay. Do you see what Isaiah is doing here? He's giving himself veracity as a prophet. He's demonstrating his truthfulness so that he will be listened to. And then, <coughs> verse five, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and the many king of Assyria and all his f- glory. Okay, he said, I want to do this the easy way. I wanted to be a nourishing, life-giving river to you, but since you've resisted it, I'm gonna bring the people of the Euphrates, the Assyrians, and they're going to come and bring judgment. And it will rise over all its channels and over all its banks, and it will sweep on to Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspringed rings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Okay, two things. One, we forgot to mention this, but Ahaz doesn't stop and stand still. Ahab doesn't watch out and be careful. Instead of Ahaz trusting God, he calls Assyria up on the phone and says, hey, why don't you bail me out, okay? And so here, he's speaking of judgment here, and he says that judgment's going to rise all the way up to the next, and then it says it will fill the breadth of your land. Uh, um, but here, more literally, it says it's not going to wipe you out. It's going to stop right there at the last minute. And then if you have a different translation instead of this proclamation, oh, Emmanuel, you'll say because of Emmanuel. I would say that's a better translation here. What he's saying is, I'm not going to wipe you out t- totally because as I already said, Emmanuel is coming. Okay? God will preserve the head of Judah, which is the line of David, until the son of David comes. Okay? Verse 9, be broken, you peoples, be shattered, give ear, all you far countries, Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. And notice here, for God is with us. It will not stand, why? Because Emmanuel. Okay. All the counsels, all of your plotting and planning, all of your strong soldiers, they're not going to wipe out Judah because of Emmanuel. Now here's the thing. In Luke chapter 19, we have Luke's, conveying of what we call the triumphal entry the day that jesus fulfills the prophecy of zechariah and rides into jerusalem on a donkey okay people know what that means they understand the the um announcement that jesus is making by fulfilling this prophecy and so they're coming in front of jesus and they're they've got the palm fronds and they're laying them down and they're crying out hosanna save now so they're happy and rejoicing And the religious leaders are angry because they're seeing this as blasphemous. And they ask Jesus, why? Why would you allow the people to speak these things? And he answers and he says, out of the mouth of babes. He says, they speak the truth. I'm not going to stop them. But Luke tells us something unique. Where the crowds are happy and the religious leaders are angry, Jesus is weeping. As he rides in, he's not riding in happy and rejoicing. He's riding in weeping. And this is what he prays. This is what he cries out as he weeps. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you into my arms like a hen does its mother's chick, but you were not willing. And since you did not know the day of your visitation, destruction will come upon you. Israel is safe. Israel is protected. They're preserved all the way through the Babylonian captivity, brought back in the land, and then Emmanuel comes. But with their rejection of Emmanuel, the safety is removed. And Israel is stomped on and removed from the land entirely and there are no Jews left in Israel and they don't return there till the 1940s. Okay. That doesn't mean God's plan for Israel is over. Isaiah will have things to say about that as well. But Emmanuel came. In fact, check this out. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed with Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and so were the historical genealogical records that traced Jewish lineage, person to person, tribe to tribe, all the way back. Which means the genealogies we have in Matthew and Luke that chart the evidence of his messiahship can't be presented after 70 AD. Okay. Messiah comes, Emmanuel comes, the restraint is removed, the protection is gone. That's why John writes a whole gospel after 70 AD and says, you know what, you're you're weeping because the temple is gone, but Jesus tabernacled among us. You're weeping because we no longer have Passover, but Jesus was the Passover lamb. That's his whole point is to say, we don't need this anymore because he's come, he's here. The shadow has been fulfilled by the substance. Finishing here in verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Two plans are possible here. God's plan, perseverance, protection, tell Emmanuel, and the conspiracy theorist plan. Here's how it's going to play out. I hear that. I'm going to, right? And he basically Here he's told, he tells himself, he tells people, don't get caught up in the plans and plots of man. Instead, verse 13, uh, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, he says, if you fear God, you need fear nothing else. Conspiracy theories shouldn't bother you. Plots and the tumultuous movements of nations shouldn't get under your skin. Either God is on the throne and he will execute his plan without anything getting in his way, or we fall subject to the politics and the dangers of of nations. Verse 14, God will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling both to the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." Okay? It's both a sanctuary stone, it's a place of refuge and safety, and it's a stumbling stone. The early church fathers had a saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Jesus says the same thing about his ministry. He says, I'm the rock that was promised. I'm the stone of stumbling. And he says, either you will fall down on your knees or you will be crushed. Same stone. Two different reactions, two different responses. It's the same thing here in Isaiah. Verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 16. Bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. Okay, two possibilities here. A lot of the time when we see sealed prophecies, it's just like that Johnny Carson envelope again. Jeremiah especially. Those prophecies are sealed, before witnesses and put in a safe place so that when they come to pass, it's opened and everybody can know that his word came to pass. That may be what's going on here. But it also may be he's basically saying, value, to, value this, protect this, hold on to this, keep it safe. Okay. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Remember the names of his children? One, destruction's coming quickly. Another, a remnant will return to the land. And then Isaiah's name, God saves. He says even their names are here as signs and portents, pointing to the possibilities in the future. Verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? It's not that Israel isn't interested in Isaiah's message because they have no concerns about the future. It's not that they're not interested in Isaiah's message because he doesn't seem to speak from a transcendent place of understanding. It's because instead they're turning to necromancers and mediums. They're turning everywhere but the God of their history, the God of their heritage, to understand these things, verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. He says, if you're going to look for answers, read the Bible. It's all there. In fact, everything Israel needs to know right here and right now is written in the book of Deuteronomy. Everything they're currently experiencing and are going to experience has already been laid out as the consequences of their future disobedience in the book of Deuteronomy in chapters 28 and 29. He says, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They're dwelling in darkness. Okay? If you reject the light that God has given in the scriptures, then all you have is darkness. If you reject the truth, Paul tells us, then you'll believe a lie. Just because there's nothing else left. Okay? If you refuse to admit that two plus two equals four, whatever answer you come to is guaranteed to be wrong. That's what he's saying here. He's saying there's only one light. There's only one truth. If you reject that, you have only darkness, verse 21, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. When they're hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and will turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. He says they will eventually look to God, but when they do, all they'll see is judgment because they refuse to look for mercy now, okay? In fact, I would suggest to you that one of the reasons Isaiah 6 exists before the book of Emmanuel, before Isaiah's commission, right, that it's gonna be hardened is you see two very different responses. You see Isaiah who sees his own sin and falls before God, woe is me, and you see Israel who plugs their ears and trods on towards their own judgment. Now, if that wasn't good enough, next week we get into Isaiah chapter 9 and the rest of the book of Emmanuel, which is also amazing. So let's, um, let's pray and close.